Once again, this morning we turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 2. In so many ways, the creation account that is given to us in the book of Genesis is different from the creation myths of Israel's neighbors. And one of the most striking differences, it pertains to the account that we're going to read in a few moments, the account here in Genesis chapter 2 concerning the creation of the first woman. None of Israel's neighbors had a tradition involving a separate account of the creation of the first woman. This is the only one from ancient times that has such an account in the various creation narratives. In Genesis 1.27, we have a brief statement about the creation of both sexes. When we read, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And that verse simply informs us that God created two image bearers of God, one of them male, the other female. It doesn't tell us whether he created them simultaneously or sequentially, It doesn't feature anything different about the creation of the male and the creation of the female. But now here in Genesis chapter 2, considerable space is devoted to the creation of the first woman. Now, obviously, the creation of the first woman, it was necessary for the propagation of the human race. And the verses that we're about to read, they're also very instructive about God's original design for marriage. But they're also important because of what they teach us about the special place that God has designed for the woman. And in Genesis chapter 2, Moses fills in the gaps concerning God's creation of the first man and the first woman on the sixth day of creation. With reference to the creation of the man, it is all summed up in one verse. Chapter 2 and verse 7 The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. One verse. But now when it comes to the creation of the first woman, we have six verses that tell us what God did. And these will form the basis of our sermon this morning. I want to read beginning with verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Now, before we look at this passage, let's pray for the help of Almighty God. Our 
Holy Father, we thank you that you have given unto us this window through which we can see what you did so long ago when you created the first man and the first woman. And we pray that as we study this this morning that you would teach us the proper role and the special place that you have in mind for the women that are here in this room, also the women that have been born through all the ages, especially those that want to seek and do seek to be like unto you, and like unto what you set before them in your word. Bless us to teach us these things by the power of your spirit, we pray. Pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Now as we look at the verses that we just read, our primary focus this morning is not going to be on what they teach us about marriage. That's going to be another sermon next time I preach from Genesis 2. In our next sermon, along with the last two verses of the chapter, we will look at what they teach us about the relationships between the husband and the wife. But our focus this morning is going to be the creation of the first woman. And the verses that we just read, they conveniently divide themselves into two parts. In the first three verses, we read of Adam's need, which is a counterpart. And then in the next three verses, we read of God's provision, which was a woman. We look first of all at Adam's need, and his need was for a counterpart. And this is set before us in verses 18 through 20. Now, in these verses, we learn about Adam's incompleteness without a woman. And we also learn about the gracious heart of God in noticing this need and in making plans to remedy that lack. And from nothing did the first man learn so much about the heart of God than what he learned through what takes place right in these verses. He could learn much about God by looking at the creation all around him. But in terms of finding out the heart of God, this is a passage, this is a section that especially would have spoken to Adam's heart. And one of the meanings of the word counterpart, which was what we said that his need was, is the definition copy or duplicate. But Adam wasn't just looking for, didn't need just a duplicate, an exact person just exactly like himself. Our heading, we have in mind a different definition that is also given in our dictionaries for the word counterpart. And this is what I have in mind in particular, this definition, one of two parts that fit, complete, or complement one another. Adam's need was for a counterpart that would complete and complement him. And by complement, I'm using the word that has an E in the middle, not an I in the middle. If you pay a compliment with an I in the middle, that's a word of praise uh, to somebody. But complement, with the E in the middle of the word, it refers to this which we had just des- described, this issue of completing or, or as, it, as it were, filling out what is lacking in the part of the other person. Like two pieces in a puzzle that perfectly interlock with one another, the woman that God created for the man perfectly interlocked and completed him. Now with respect to Adam's need for this counterpart, 
The first thing that we encounter in verse 18 is God's observation. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Now in the creation account in Genesis 1, in six places, we encounter the joyous refrain, And God saw that it was good. Six times we read those words. And this is capped off by the satisfaction, especially that God had when everything was in place. And so on the last day of creation, he exclaims, it was very good. And this sevenfold refrain, it leaves us unprepared for the first not good in the creation account. It's not good that the man should be alone. And this kind of startles us if we're reading it and paying attention. Why is it that again and again, everything was perfect, everything's good, and now we find something that's not good about what exists there? Well, Jewish professor Kasudo, he points out that the not good in this place is very strong language. And it indicates not only the absence of something good, but also a substantial deficiency. And the word order in the Hebrew also emphasizes what is being said. Oftentimes, that's how the emphasis is placed is by the order of the words in the sentence. And if you took the order of the Hebrew into the English language, it would be like this, not good as man's aloneness. Now the observation, it is not good that man should be alone. This is all of God. God makes this observation. It's not that Adam was complaining about being lonely. It wasn't that Adam was having a little dialogue with God and suggested there's something a little bit I'm missing here, I don't know what it is. And then, and then God begins to investigate and he notices for the first time. No. In fact, at first, surrounded by so many wonders of creation and by a whole zoo of pets that adored Adam as he was their leader in that first creation, the assessment not good, this originated not from Adam. Adam said, this, this is not good, but this came from God. And this is his observation. Now we ask, was this observation, it is not good that man should be alone, is this, was this uttered audibly? Did Adam hear God say this? We don't know. We have no way of knowing. Well, in his book, Striking the Original Match, a book on marriage, Chuck Swindle relates this. And I don't quote him because he's reliable and everything, but he's very good with illustrations. And he relates, I will never forget performing a wedding for a couple who had been engaged for about two years, quite a long while while you're in love. The groom was as anxious as many a man I've ever seen. During my preliminary introductory comments in the ceremony, I chose to read this verse, Genesis 2.18. And no sooner had I explained the emphatic statement, it's not good is man's aloneness that the nervous groom sounded forth a stage whisper you could hear in a little theater of Broadway. Amen. And who knows? Well, maybe God, or maybe Adam did. He did the same thing. Yeah, I see it. That's, that's, the, that's true. And being all, being all alone, living, you see, in an isolated, lonely heart life, this is hard to bear. This is something that troubled partners tend to forget as they think about being divorced one from another and going back to, again, a state in which they are alone. Now, before we move on, I want to just stress a practical lesson that emerges from this observation. 
And the lesson is that human beings are not meant to live in solitude. The super spiritual person might say, well, surely the man shouldn't feel lonely because he's got fellowship with God. That's all he needs. He, he, he can have communion with God. What else does he need? Well, God overrules this pious-sounding remark. And though human beings are created for fellowship with God, they're also meant to have relations with fellow human beings. They're social creatures. That's the way God made them. Among the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there is personal communion. And the God in whose image we have been created, he's not a lonely God. And there is only one true God, and this one true God is not a unitary, solitary person. He is a, 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 a triune person, a, a triune God with three persons. Now in chapter 1, we read of the deliberations that took place within the Godhead when God said, let us make man in our image. Chapter 1, verse 26. And human beings, they're not tripersonal like God, but they're like God in being created with the capability and even the hunger for personal communion with other people. We are so put together as to live in communities. It's not natural for human beings to be hermits. And as we're going to see in our next sermon, marriage is in one way in which this personal communion with another person can be enjoyed. But it's not the only way in which personal communion can be enjoyed. The Apostle Paul and all believers and even the Lord Jesus, they were given, I shouldn't say all other believers, Paul and some other believers and the Lord Jesus, they were given a special calling to remain unmarried. But in the church, we have not always made it easy for people that are unmarried. It's just a solid fact. In addition to those that have always been single, there are those that are divorced and therefore they no longer have a spouse. There are widows, there are widowers, and those perhaps that we would say are essentially in this lonely position because they're trapped in marriages that are more of a struggle than a joy. Maybe a marriage with an unconverted person. And for such people, it's often difficult to find the richness of fellowship that they crave. And those of us that enjoy happy marriages, or those of us who in other ways enjoy regular fellowship with others, we tend to overlook the loneliness that certain ones in our midst experience. And we need to be aware of it. And even non-Christian scientists, they recognize that we are hardwired to be social creatures. Our bodies are composed of some 37 trillion cells. And scientists have discovered that within our cellular structures, there is what they call a mirror neutron, which they suppose helps us to empathize with others. And almost all modern-day humans, they live in states, they work in companies, they're part of families, or in other ways, they crave fellowship. And this is what's behind the whole social, uh, social networking craze. Well, the existence of this natural craving for fellowship, this is why solitary confinement is one of the worst punishments that's ever been devised. We think we're going to be not so, not so evil as they were a few hundred years ago when they lashed people's backs. But I submit to you, sticking somebody in solitary confinement is much crueler, especially for long term, than getting a flogging. It's a terrible punishment. 
It often results in driving sane people absolutely mad. And at least in cases where a man has been violently brutalized or he brutalizes others scores of times, there might be no other choice. But one of the worst abuses of this kind of punishment is the use of it to persecute political enemies. Recently I saw an interview with somebody who was an elderly man that was put in solitary confinement for about two months in connection with the January 6th riot. And even though he had never entered the Capitol building, he never climbed the steps, but still he was put under suspicion and so automatically was put under this cruel form of punishment. He spoke of it as being hell-like, the closest thing that he could ever imagine to being in hell. Lights on constantly, shivering constantly because of cold air blasting on him, continually hearing screams down the hall, and continually never getting access to a lawyer. And the, and the worst of it, he says, the absolute sense of hopelessness, having no idea whether he ever would get out, whether any lawyer would come to his rescue, whether this crooked system that put him in the place where he was in that system, would there ever be a way out of that situation? It was a situation of absolute hopelessness. A picture you see, one of the pictures of what hell is going to be like. It's a place of absolute despair and hopelessness. Well, that which makes solitary confinement so unbearable is also what makes loneliness so painful. One of the greatest trials of those that find themselves unwillingly single is the failure of the church to be a community of friendship. And this is especially the case in our day when people don't even know their next door neighbors. And their neighbors seem perfectly content to just go on uh, being uh, remote, maybe waving maybe from the distance, and that's it. And one of the most painful experiences for lonely individuals is being in a large room of people without anybody engaging them in a meaningful conversation. It's almost like you'd rather be where there's no people than to have that kind of a situation. And as a church, we need to be an oasis of friendship and love in an unfriendly world. It only, it only rubs salt, you see, into the wounds of such a person to tell that person, well, if Jesus is their friend, that should be enough. And yes, Jesus is the best of all friends. But God didn't say to Adam, you have me to be your best friend. That should be enough. That's not what he said. He said it's not good for the man to be alone. Just as in the original creation, members of the new creation in Christ are not meant to exist on their own. As members of this new covenant community, we should ever be on the lookout as to who's on the fringes. And when we see such a person, to reach out right away to that person. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, those that claim to be Christians but have no desire to ever be joined to a church or be part of a body of Christ, they too have a warped opinion and view of themselves and a disregard for God's will that his people not be alone. Well, so much for God's observation. It is not good that the man should be alone. Now still under our first main heading, notice with B, in the second place, God's resolve. The last half of the 18th verse we read, I will make him a helper 
incomparable to him. Now these words, they represent a sovereign, unilateral resolve or purpose. God isn't responding to a request that Adam put up to him. Instead, the initiative is all of God. He sees a situation that needs to be remedied, and he resolves to remedy the situation. And in particular, notice here, he says, I will make him a helper. Now, the word that's translated helper, it's often mistakenly understood to denote somebody that has an, a subordinate status to somebody that's over him or her. In other words, to describe servile service to a superior person. It's often thought that that's what a helper is. In our English word, it gives the wrong impression here. Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary sets forth this definition of what a helper is, one that helps, especially a relatively unskilled worker who assists a skilled worker, usually a manual laborer. Will you try to give that definition out and say, well, the Bible teaches that this is what women are to be. They're to be like these unskilled people helping other people. Try, try that in this day of women, women's uh, feminism and so on. Well, the idea that our text supports the role of women as a slave-like class that could just be ordered around by their, their husband's slave masters, this is soundly refuted by the fact that this word that Moses uses in this place, one of the most frequent ways, and perhaps the most frequent way, and this word, word is used in the Old Testament, it's used to reference to God being our helper. He's depicted as a helper, not as one that's in a subordinate role, but precisely because he is the stronger one, he is our helper. In Exodus 18.4, Moses calls one of his sons Eliezer, for he says, The Lord God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And so he gives Eliezer, which means my God is help. And that's the way the word is used. The powerful God was my helper. In Deuteronomy 33, 7, the same word is used of Moses' prayer for Judah. May you be a help. He prays to God, may you be a help against his enemies. Well, we could go through many other examples. They're scattered throughout the writings of Moses, the Psalms, and so forth. The word, by no means, depicts, you see, some sort of servile valet. Instead, it conveys the idea of somebody that it is, assists somebody to reach fulfillment. And it's used to refer to somebody that comes to the rescue of another person. And God's answer to man's loneliness was a woman that would be a vital part of his finding fulfillment. And yes, she would sometimes come to his rescue. And blessed be God for my dear wife that has rescued me I don't know how many times. Rescued me from myself. It still has a lot of work to do. Now, notice also the way Moses goes on to describe the helper that God prepared. He not only refers to the fact that God determines to make a helper, but she was to be a helper comparable to him. Literally, God says, I will make a helper as in front of him. This gives us the idea of a person that, as it were, is Adam's mirror image, his counterpart. She's therefore neither a superior nor an inferior, but an equal to him in terms of who she is as a person. 
As Adam's counterpart, she will share in his nature. And as his matching opposite, she will supply what's lacking in him. They will fit each other, you see, like two pieces of a puzzle. And this gives the idea, you see, of what it was that God has in mind. God declares that help is on the way from somebody that's going to be both like and unlike the man. One whose corresponding differences would make the man complete. And she would make it possible for the man to do what God asked him to do. To get it done in a way that he wouldn't get it done otherwise. And likewise, she would find her fulfillment and happiness in being man's counterpart. She wouldn't just be Adam's maid. She wouldn't. This isn't God's idea that, you know, I'm, I'll make some cooks here. I need some, need some maids for the men, so I'll make a woman. And they'll do all that kind of stuff. And yes, in our fallen world, just as the man is going to get blisters on his hands as he's handling the plow behind an ox, her work sometimes will be tedious, sometimes it'll be difficult, but she will be more than just a worker or a baby maker. She will be Adam's counterpart, his companion, his confidant, and what we now call his better half. That is what she will be. In God's original plan, each partner would be distinct and unique, each needing the other and therefore finding fulfillment in each other. Well, so far in the first half of our passage, our focus has been on God's initiative. We looked at God's observation, and we looked at God's resolve. But now, in the third place, we turn to a man's awareness. So far, it is God alone that sees Adam's need for a counterpart. And Adam needs to see it, too. So to prepare this needy bachelor, God initiates an awareness program. Now, this is the awareness program that he initiates. Verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now this menagerie of creatures that were brought was brought before Adam. It might have been from the birds and the animals created on the fifth and the sixth days prior to Adam's creation. The beginning of verse 19 could be translated out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and so on. Or it could be translated he formed it now. Strictly speaking, it could be translated either way. It could be that from the species that God had created earlier, he and were all over the earth, God maybe formed some special specimens for the purpose of presenting them to Adam. We don't know. Whatever the case is, and I'm, I'm inclined to think that this is something, these were the creatures that he had already created. But up to this point, God has been the one that has given names to everything that he created. Nobody else doing the naming work. On the first day he called the light day. He called the darkness night. The second day he called the expanse heaven. On the third day he called the dry land earth, and he called the waters the seas. And in the verses that we just read, for the first time, man is now given a name. He's now for the first time called Adam. Now, 
Man and Adam are the exact same Hebrew word. And the only difference you see is that the man has a definite article. So you read in the earlier parts of the chapter, God did this to the man. It's referring, therefore, to a man. But Adam is without the, the definite article. It's referring, therefore, to his name, Adam. So for the first time, his name is given to him. But now you see it is Adam that begins to be the namer, as God had been the namer. Verse 19 tells us that God brought the creatures before Adam to see what he would call them. And verse 20 tells us that the name that he assigned to these creatures is stuck. And this process reveals that from the very day in which he was created, Adam was given intellectual capacities that far exceeded the other animals. Naming all these creatures, it demanded an understanding of the nature of the animals that were being named. It wasn't just willy-nilly names that were doled out, a random selection of sounds, but right away, instead, Adam, day one of his creative creation, he had the ability to think of these animals in groups, which ones are like one another. And he could see the similarities, he could see the differences. It wasn't, you see, just a 10-mile parade of animals with randomly making up names along the way. Oh, let's see, I've got a camel. Uh, 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 Artvark. Uh, 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 next one, oh yeah, zebra, I'll try that one. Or maybe pelican, I like the sound of pelican. As Dixon Merritt put it, a wonderful bird is a pelican, his bill will hold more than a belican. Well, instead, just as there was a relationship between the light that God created and the name Day, it was an appropriate name given to it, Adam had the intellectual ability to assign appropriate names to each creature. As the classic commentary by Kylan Dalish points out, you mustn't regard the names that Adam gave the animals as merely names denoting their outward characteristics, but as a deep and direct insight into the nature of the animals, which penetrated far deeper than first impressions. And this puts to the lie the idea, by the way, of the whole theory of theistic evolution, the notion that over millions of years, ignorant apes got smarter and smarter until at last Homo sapiens emerged. No, day one, he is brilliant. Well, Adam's conferring names on these creatures was also an expression of his authority and his sovereignty. God's sovereignty was manifested in naming the things that he made. Now, as God's vice regent, or God's governor over creation, Adam begins to fulfill the dominion mandate that God had given to him in Genesis 1 to subdue the earth, have dominion over the earth, and so on. And part of his ruling, you see, it begins to be right, right at this point where he begins to name the creatures that were brought before him. And as he fulfills this kingly role of interpreting animals and giving them appropriate names, he saw that there was no creature that was corresponding to him. And in the largest scheme of things, this was the whole point of this exercise. This is why God had this happen. He wanted Adam to begin to see his need. He brought these creatures in front of Adam one by one to awaken Adam's desires with somebody that would correspond to him. And as he names the animals, none of them could respond back to him intelligently. 
Maybe a bird could chirp back a few sounds that sound similar, but couldn't really have a conversation with him intelligently. This couldn't happen. And in the process of naming the animals, he also began to notice that many of the animals had social relationships that he didn't have. And in verse 16, God had said, I will make a helper comparable to him. And now at the end of verse 18, the naming exercise ends with this conclusion. He's looked over all these animals, he's named them all. And yet, what do we read? But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And upon discovering this, Adam began to long for companionship with a being like himself. And so God's awareness program was successful. Adam began to ache for a corresponding other. God was preparing Adam to value the companion that he was about to make for him. And what a beautiful picture this is of the way which God prepared Adam for the perfect counterpart that he had in mind for Adam. Well, this brings us to the end of the first half of this passage, Adam's need, a counterpart. But now, the second half of this passage, we have an account of God's provision, a woman. And this is set before us in the verses 21 through 23. Now, with reference to this provision, we read, first of all, of the woman's creation. And this is what we have in verses 21 and following. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. He took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Again, God takes the initiative. He begins by causing Adam to fall into a deep sleep. We might even say a supernaturally induced sleep. The Hebrew term that's translated deep sleep, it usually indicates a sleep that is very heavy. And often it comes by supernatural agency. Remember the time in which David and Abishai, they were fleeing from Saul, was trying to kill David. And they went, crept into the camp of Saul and his soldiers that night. And the whole purpose of it was to show Saul that he could kill him if he wanted to. They crept in. They took his, his, uh, a couple things from his, his jug of water, and I think it was his, uh, a piece of armor. I can't remember which one it was. But whatever it was, the narrator explains how they could go into the camp without a, tr- a broken twig waking up a soldier, or any other sound waking up a soldier. How did this take place? No man saw or knew knew it or awoke. For they all were asleep, because a deep sleep for the Lord had fallen on them. And here in Genesis 2, evidently, there was, as it were, a supernatural anesthesia administered. God put the man into such a deep sleep that Adam doesn't feel the pain of the operation. Now there are some that think that in light of modern science, the description that's given here of a woman being created from Adam's rib, this is just a primitive myth. 
they came up with these, these mythological type of ideas, and this is just another one of these old myths like they had in other ancient societies. But there's nothing new under the sun. Even back in John Calvin's day, the 1500s, skeptics raised similar objections. And so Calvin writes, although to profane persons this method of forming, may, forming woman may seem ridiculous, and some of these may say that Moses is dealing in fables, yet to us the wonderful providence of God here shines forth. For to the end that the conjunction of the human race might be more sacred, in other words, the human race being bound together in this way, the man and the woman, that it might be more sacred, he purposed that both males and females should spring from one and the same origin. Now, some have thought, have tried to evade what skeptics say is just another myth by saying that the rib in verse 21 is, is metaphorical, it's not physical. But we unashamedly confess I unashamedly confess that I believe this is a straightforward biblical account of what God actually did. This was an actual rib. It wasn't just some kind of a poetic metaphor. And just as the man was formed from the dust of the ground, a thing that would remind him forever of his humble beginnings, his humble affinity with the earth, the fact that the woman was physically taken from the man is a continual reminder of the affinity of the woman to the man and of his affinity to her. Now, godly and sound interpreters, they differ over whether the word translated rib should be rib or whether it should be side. God took the side or God took the rib. And they, they discuss this because in pretty much every other place in the Old Testament, the word is translated side, not rib. But the New King James, the New American, the English Standard, they all stick with the traditional translation, rib. And I can't be dogmatic here, but I think the traditional is the best, even though it's a rare occurrence of the word. Because the Bible says God took one of his ribs. And that'd be kind of a strange thing to say God took one of his sides. Like he cut a huge hunk out of his side. He just took one out of the two sides. You don't usually say one of something when it's just one of two things. So I think it's more natural for us to think of of, of God taking out a rib. The expression of one of his ribs, it makes sense, you see, in this context. And the language it pictures a long, curved, glistening rib, moist with Adam's blood. And no, this doesn't mean that the early Hebrews believed that, that men have one less rib than women do. As Kent Hughes puts it, when God closed Adam back up, he was missing a rib, but his children can count them all. Well, the significance of this is profound, that God took this rib, and from this he made the woman. The woman was made of the same stuff as the man, the same bone, the same flesh, the same DNA. And because she came from Adam, she perfectly shares in Adam's image-bearing capacity as an image-bearer of God. And the symbolism of this origin, it's profound. Her creation out of Adam is the basis of her equality with Adam. As Matthew Henry quaintly puts it, Eve was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Eve was taken out of Adam so that he might embrace her and love her 
as a part of himself. It was himself, you see, that he's seeing. And it seems that Paul has this very thing in mind when he writes in Ephesians 5, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Adam sees himself, as it were, it's taken from him. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. But the finishing touch of Moses' account is that the, at the end of verse 22, we read that after the Lord fashioned the rib into the woman, he brought her to the man, and we'll have more to say about that in our next sermon. And then finally, after the account of creation of the woman in verse 23, we read Adam's response. It's an outburst of astonishment, of exclamation of joy. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He has the counterpart in front of him. Now throughout scripture, the phrase bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is used to express oneness. For instance, it was the traditional kinship formula of Israel. In English, we speak of blood relatives, but the Hebrews spoke of their flesh and bone, and they would refer to those that were closely related to them. For instance, you remember when Jacob fled to escape Esau's anger at him, and he flees to the household of Laban, his uncle. And when Laban hears about his arrival, he runs and he meets him, he embraces him, he kisses him, and after Jacob tells him that he was his sister Rebekah's son, in other words, so he was the nephew of, of Laban. When Laban hears all of this being explained, he says to Jacob, this is his response, surely you are of my bone and my flesh. It's the kinship you see. That, that's the idea that's expressed behind this phrase. And so Adam saw Eve as a mirror of himself with some pleasing differences. As Calvin beautifully paraphrases his exclamation, now at length, Adam says, as it were, I have obtained a suitable companion who is part of the substance of my flesh and in whom I behold, as it were, another self. And having had his naming powers honed to perfection, he spontaneously adds, she shall be called woman, Hebrew Isha, because she was taken out of man. Ish. And this sound play of these two Hebrew words, Isha from Ish, it celebrates the oneness of their relationship. Well, I want to close with some practical implications that come out of this with respect to uh, women. And we're going to go back over this and we're going to look at the last couple verses of the chapter when we speak about marriage. But especially in the relationship between the man and the woman in marriage, it's important to keep a balance between the leadership role of the man that God has prescribed and the equality of the woman in the relationship. And God also intends that these two things would, be exist, would exist in the church. And first of all, I want to just remind you that this stresses equality in terms of what she is as a person. And as we're going to see... In a moment, the differences between men and women are intended by God to work in such a way that they complement one another in marriage and also in the, in the church. And this is worked out in different roles that God has assigned. 
And this relationship is a far cry from the distortion. People accuse Christians in the Bible of make of, of, of the Bible teaches male dominance and servile female, you see, of subservience. As if there are these male lords and there are these these female slaves that are ordered around, that's all they are. The picture of Eve in Eden is a picture of equality yet difference. And the differences between the sexes and the different roles they performed, it mustn't be so emphasized as to suggest that the male is essentially superior to the female. Genesis 1 and 2 remind us that Eve was created in the image of God just as Adam was created in God's image. And one implication that comes out of this is that she has full access to God. She enjoys communion with God on the same intimate level that Adam does. And the fact that the woman was made from the man, it doesn't mean that she's in any way lower in her intellectual abilities or in her spiritual life from the man. So this teaches equality. It teaches the high place of women in the church and in the home. Of course, equality doesn't mean differences of role. I mean, it doesn't mean sameness of role. There's different roles. You mustn't suppose that the only differences between the man and the woman, they pertain to man's role as a leader. There are other differences. And so I want to speak for a few minutes before we close concerning some of these differences, and especially the way in which there are certain spiritual graces that are often given to women in a way that causes them to surpass mankind, the male part of mankind. There's certain graces that present the fairer side of humanity, maybe put it that way, in women. The man has the advantage over her in physical power. In certain ways, he's equipped the man to fulfill certain roles that he's given to the man. But the woman has excellencies that don't tend to manifest themselves in the same way in the opposite sex. And I want to just mention a few of them before we close. And uh, in greater detail, in his wonderful book, First Things, Gardner Spring, he sketches this out way more than I have time to do so in these coming few minutes. But one of her great distinctives is that she lives in her affections. At times, this tendency manifests itself in her faults. She's too much controlled by her emotions. But it's also worked out in a wonderful way to the blessing of many. Man lives in the world. He's out in the hurly-burly of the world. Out in the world with all the contentions, making a living in the world. But God has given the woman, you see, a loving, lovely nature. And she lives and he seeks to live in the hearts of others. And the objects of her affection, they live continually in her her heart in her thoughts. She's more likely to open up her heart when you talk to her. She's more likely to keep her, and and less likely to keep her her thoughts in prison within her her own mind. And she has more eagerness and intensity in, in in her endeavors because she's governed by her affections. And at times this can be a downfall, for instance, when she becomes especially bitter in response to something bad that has happened. But to the extent that her affections are governed by Scripture, A world of good is accomplished. Now surely all of us have been deeply touched as we have heard week by week the outpouring that's manifested in the letters that we hear from Rebecca Hamilton. 
And I'll never forget when her husband came and he preached to us years ago. And I think this may have been, I think, when they had come back from, from the Far East and they were, gonna, they were on furlough. And I'll never forget the way he talked about a time which, which in a huge intersection with the multitude of, of traffic going everywhere and people not obeying the lanes like they do even around, somewhat in our country, a woman falling down in the midst of it all. And in the hard-heartedness of the, of the mindset of the, of the people from that land, nobody was even concerned to have any concern for that woman. But right away, Rebecca wants to stop and wants to rescue that woman. And that's, that's, that's her heart. She's always rescued people. She's always got a heart for, for children that, that, uh, are, or, that are destitute and so forth. And she risked at that instant her own life, you see, to help a desperate woman. And so it is, you see, there is this grace that shines through the way in which she lives through her affections. And then also, let me add that the woman also tends to be more self-sacrificing than the man. And indeed, there are selfish women in the world, but more often, I think, than among men, I think most of us will agree that it's women that especially that show generosity and kindness and self-denial for the sake of others. There's nothing that the godly woman won't sacrifice for the people she loves. She sacrifices everything for that little baby she just was born. She's awake all night with that baby, up, up, off and on. And the history of, of, of those that identify themselves with the interests of others and deny themselves for the sake of others, this is a history of, of remarkable stories in the history of women. The example of Ann Judson will ever be in my mind, having read the biography of her husband, and no doubt always was in the mind of those that knew her. And the way she continually risked her life and sought the welfare of her husband when he was in a torture prison and reached out to him and was faithful to him and, and persevered in the midst of year after year trials like this. This self-sacrifice was remarkable. The woman also tends to be more patient in suffering than the man. The burden of suffering and childbirth was laid on her when she first fell. But ever since that day, especially among the godly, God has prepared the woman to endure suffering with patience. And whether it's physical suffering, whether it's poverty, the suffering that comes from pure exhaustion, she nobly meets it. And she will often suffer wrongfully in ways that man won't. But all the disciples will run away. Who is it that's at the foot of the cross? It's Mary Magdalene, the other Marys were there suffering, as it were, with Jesus right to the bitter end. Well, more could be added, but let me just mention one more feature. The woman tends to be more sensible of her dependence than the man does. God made her dependent. She feels her dependence. The man is her natural guardian, whether it's the man as a soldier, whether it's the man as a husband, or the man as a son. And so it's natural for her to feel her dependence. And in danger, she instinctively turns to the man for her strength. And the man he summons, you see, you see, so to speak, his firmness, he girds himself for the battle, for the conflict, while the woman retreats, you see, to a place of refuge. And you can see this even from childhood. The, the, the girl runs to the help in a difficult time to, to her brother's arms. But this spirit of dependence, it becomes a grace in the Christian woman 
because especially it is manifested by a great dependence upon God for God's help and for God's strength to get us through the difficult times in which we find ourselves. Especially the godly widow we read of in the New Testament. Paul speaks of the godly widow. When all her earthly support is gone, she gives herself to prayer and supplications day and night. Well, all of us should learn from this dependence to depend upon the Lord, especially those that are outside of Christ. You need to learn to depend upon the righteousness, upon the person, the saving power of Jesus, and not depend upon yourself. Well, I trust that these few comments will make you women want to, to grow more and more in these wonderful graces, and you men to be grateful for the graces that God has put into the hearts and the lives of our wives, of our daughters, of our fellow companions as, as church members. May the Lord increase these things and cause them to abound more and more. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you've given to us the precious gift of, of the woman that you first created and all the other women that you've brought into the world since that day. And we know that there have been evil women that have come into the world, but we bless you, Lord, for these graces that so often appear by your grace, by your power. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to appreciate them. We pray that you would keep us from abusing women because of their graciousness and because of their, their demeanor. Help us instead, Lord, to exalt them, to promote them, to rejoice in them. And we pray that the dear women of this church would more and more abound in these graces, that they would have the kind of spirit that commends them unto you and to the world and to the people of God. And may we be men that uh, promote them and, and assist them in their labors, as it were. May we be those that encourage them in what you call them to do. We pray that in all of these labors that you've called them to do, these roles that you've enabled them to perform, we pray that they too would indeed be the counterpart that we so desperately need as men. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.